All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John. And again, this week, we have a very interesting guest that we get a chance to have a conversation with, which is how we learn and how we progress in life. With me today is Naresh Visa. Uh, and uh, Naresh, Naresh, I'm trying very hard to pronounce your name. I know it's uh, difficult. I'm having a long Greek name myself, a surname. I understand your, your frustration, so please bear with me, Nairesh. Uh, let me give you Nairesh background, then we'll get into a conversation. Nairesh Visa is the founder and CEO of Krish Media and Marketing, a full-service e-commerce technology development online and digital media and marketing agency and solutions provider. Sounds like they do a lot of stuff over there. He is the number one best-selling author of Trump Book, how Digital Liberals Silenced the Nation into Making America Hate Again. That sounds like something interesting. And it can be found on Amazon.com for anyone who wants to grab a copy of it, as is well worth your time. Uh, and he's also written a couple of other books, but I think that's his latest one. And uh, he is also the host of the Work From Home show. So everyone, welcome, Nairesh Visa. How are you doing tonight, Nairesh? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Thanks for having me, John. Uh I'm, I'm glad to have you here. So let's, let's, let's just start right into it, have a conversation. Tell us about your book. Tell us about uh, how the digital scoundrel liberals have silenced our nation and made, <laughs> made all Americans hate each other again. <laughs> well, well, first off, um, I've written five different books. Most of my books are very nitty gritty e-commerce technology, um, online and, and digital marketing that's that's actually my fourth book that i wrote it came out in 2017 and it's just essentially an overview of how president trump uh, was how, how he rose to power and really the big reason the big big major reason was because of social media um president obama was the first president or really the election of 2008 was the first election that utilized a little bit of social media and then the election of 2012 used social media as a strategy. But 2016 was a situation where President Trump was elected because of social media and really because of the amount of publicity, which was almost all negative that he was getting through social media. So right now, today in 2022, you hear many people on the right saying that their voices are being silenced and their opinions are they're getting censored. They're getting right. suspended on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these other places. Well, this was happening in 2016 as well. Almost everything that you were seeing on social media was anti-Trump, negative Trump. And, and there were complaints back then too. It just wasn't as well known as it is today. It's not as in your face, like, hey, you posted something that goes against our terms or that is factually incorrect, even though it may be factually correct. Um, this was happening in, in 2016. It just wasn't really shown. And so the book walks people through, it, it, it shares data, it shares evidence that, um, President Trump, or, or just Donald Trump at the time, he was the more talked about candidate. He was, whether it was in the Republican primaries or in the actual uh, election against Hillary Clinton, right. he was the center of attention. And so that data in and of itself should have shown you that there's this kind of Newton's Newton's, uh, one of Newton's laws, which is equal but opposite reaction. 
So it's like, there's a reason why he's getting all this public. It's not because 100% of the world hates him or 100% of the country hates him or 99%. That's what it made it seem like. And that's why so many people were surprised on election night and to wake up the next morning showing that, that he had won. Uh, that was a huge surprise to a lot of people because they fell into this echo chamber on social media that where they were basically living in this alternate reality. And they didn't actually go out and understand who their neighbors are, who their friends and family are, and what their political views are. Everything they were getting was what they wanted to hear through social media. That's how these algorithms were created. It's They want to feed they want to give you what you want to hear. They, they want to tell you what you already know. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I'm glad you touched on some of those points because I think a lot of it gets jumbled up, especially with 2020 hindsight. You know, For example, I do agree with you that 2012 was probably the first real social media president being elected. And that was Obama, right? Um, and, but, but I think his use was more for fundraising which um, I remember at the time, like uh, folks seemed surprised. I mean, for all of us that are data analysts and scientists, we, we, we understood he was using A-B testing on the fly and multivariate testing. So, you know, five people get to his contribution site at the same time, they get five different options and whichever one works best gets served the next time, right? So, whereas I think they were using social media and data as a fundraising tool in 20. 16 for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I, I, you know, it was really weird observing it. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a Republican. Uh, I, I'm not a particular Donald Trump fan. But I will fully admit that in 2016, I think the media overplayed its leftist bias. And I do, I do agree with most people that, or I should say, I do agree with most of the uh alt media, for lack of a better term, um, who, who say there is this pervasive leftist bias. And of course, that goes all the way back to Cronkite. That's and, forever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Don Ra Dan Rather, you know, that's not necessarily a, a, a recent thing. People don't realize that. And it's know. not just in the United States. This is a, a common trend almost in every country. Right. I don't know why. I, I, I don't have all the research and reasons for that. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I want to go back to what you said about President Obama, because in my book, Fifty Shades of Marketing, I devote a chapter to the 2008 election mm. and specifically the the most important principle in that book the, the first marketing chapter of that book is about email marketing and i talk about how the obama campaign in 2008 was the first political presidential campaign to heavily utilize email marketing mm. because in 2004 the internet was still somewhat new and it wasn't a proven, hey, you know, should we be spending all these dollars, Bush right. and John Kerry, you know, should we be spending all these dollars on, uh, you know, Google and the internet and all that. Right, right. So it was still very traditional mainstream. But in 2008, the Obama, because he was, he did an incredible job of fundraising, obviously, he was a Democratic nominee, young, charismatic. And, sure. and so I did, a, I, I, I sourced a case study and this helped me in my own, at the time uh, in 2012, I was working a, a job as, as a marketer and it helped me apply 
these principles to my marketing campaigns. And that is the Obama campaign published after he won the presidency, they published like what they did, how they marketed, how they fund, how they fundraise or fundraised. And they found that sending more emails did not equate to lesser donations. It did not equate to losing, Mm -hmm. if you want to call supporters, Uh, it did not equate to losing supporters. So what they started doing was they started sending like three, four, five emails a day. And they, like you said, they segmented a lot of their lists out and they would just blast out emails and they didn't care. They were like, we don't care if, if people think that we're spamming them because they were finding that people weren't dropping off. And if they were dropping off, they weren't true supporters of Obama. So the hardcore supporters who they were trying to get dollars out of, they just bombarded them with donation solicitation after donation solicitation. And so when I was working for a for-profit company, I said, hey, you know what? Instead of sending one email a week, which is what we're doing right now, how about we send two emails a day? Wow. So to go from one email a week to two emails a day, it worked for Obama. So let's try it for us. And we saw sales increase by thousands of percent Mm. thousands of percent now that's now that's very interesting to me also as a marketer and a digital analyst because the typical dogma would be that if you have an email campaign or especially that you should have some sort of frequency cap right that um and and you you do send things out on a schedule and people don't realize this i think to this day the highest converting form of digital media is still email i think that by far you know that's why it was the most important chapter in my book yeah definitely so i I mean even now in 2022 you know if any clients ask me like hey what's the email email is the most effective you know um it's not as sexy obviously but it, it it is the most effective but I, I always thought, and I have to admit this bias on my part, that the, that I always felt like you would ha- have a frequency cap in place. Now, maybe that's for messaging as opposed for conversion, meaning that if you already have something like in the political arena where you have uh, devotees and, and true believers, so to speak, that they're not going to turn get turned off, as you said. And and certainly you see that even with Trump, I would I would think like, if you're on his email list, you're constantly being bombarded with solicitations for donations and action and, you know, take, do this action, blah, blah, blah. Um, Well, this is, that's a good topic because what we're talking about is the convergence of politics and like marketing or like mm -hmm. political marketing. And you bring up Trump and, and this is, this is important because a lot has changed since 2008. Facebook was just, getting started if you want to call it that there was no instagram around back then no no there was there was very little tweeting going on uh twitter was just getting started it was a text messaging messaging platform at the time right yes yeah yep yep and and i bring this up because yes trump still has his email list but he lost those hundreds of millions of what well, combined we're talking over a billion followers whom he had on instagram whom he had on facebook twitter. whom he had yeah. on twitter and and so if you just were to quantify okay it's one thing to say all right we don't like what you're saying and we want to censor you we want to deactivate your account but 
the business side of him and, and his people were like, we just lost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars by being deplatformed. And I have clients who I've worked with who were suspended, who were deplatformed, who were kicked off of YouTube because they shared some kind of they shared something that went against the the beliefs right. of you know the big tech if you want to call it and it hurt their business tremendously and i've gone on shows like yours where they were like look we can't talk about we can't talk anything about covid even if it's like the science he they would say we're just not going to talk about it because i can't afford to get deplatformed well, um, yeah, that, I mean, look, that is a problem. I mean, look, from a speech perspective, as much as I am not a Trump supporter or a lot of the conspiracy theories on the right or the left, as a matter of fact, um, I'm a big free speech advocate. So just from the concept of free speech, I find it abhorrent that Trump lost his platforms. Um, and again, not as a, I'm not even speaking as a Trump fan because I'm not. Uh, but just the concept of silencing someone's speech, I, you know, the, the cure for bad speech is better speech. That's always been my position. Um, but it kind of leaves us in a conundrum, right? Because I don't know what your personal beliefs are. I can sort of guess, but like, I'm, I'm very much a libertarian. So yes, these are private companies. Yes. What they're doing, I find inherently wrong, but is the solution to have government intervention. I think that's a worse, that leads wow. us to a worse spot, right? So uh, I admit I have no good solutions. Like how, like the concept of regulating a Twitter or Facebook is abhorrent to me. Like really it should be the market that punishes them. And- I am a hundred percent with you. And yeah. that's why I, I was about to say, I disagree with you because in the, their private businesses, they can run their businesses however they'd like. And right. so I don't, I actually never had a problem. Now, I think they're shooting themselves in the feet. I think they're bad business decisions, which is a different topic. Right. So, so I'm all for, look, they're private businesses. They can do whatever they want, but they have to bear and deal with the consequences. Sure. And so now we're seeing when CNN basically said, we're not going to cover Trump anymore. We've seen their more than 70% ratings decline as a result of that. And they've had a completely new management. They fired a bunch of people. Right. They came up with excuses to fire them. Top leading executives resigned. Um, I think because of that decision, we see with Twitter, with Facebook, I mean, Facebook stock is down like 70% from its high last year or yeah, from its high. And uh, Twitter, I mean, the, the mess that they're in right now in litigation with Elon Musk, right. this is heavily because they've taken the stance of, hey, you know what, we're going to just kick these people off our platform. And from a business perspective, that's a lot of followers and a lot of fans who you're also essentially pissing off and kicking out. I don't think it's a good business decision to do such a thing. And that's why in, in, in my book, Trump book, I have a chapter that says, uh, or, or, or it's titled something like why NBA coaches, Steve Kerr, Stan Van Gundy, et cetera, et cetera, should shut their mouths hmm. and why Colin Kaepernick, you know, I don't remember the title, but it was basically very anti Colin Kaepernick. And the reason again is you're free to do whatever you want. It's, it, it's, as they say, you know, it's a free country. You're it's, your speech is protected by the first amendment. 
but there are consequences to what you do and what you say. And that's what people don't understand when it comes to free speech. Um, I can, I can be like a, a doctor, right. And go in to a consultation with a patient who's dying and all of a sudden just start kneeling and say, you know, something that's completely off topic to the problem at hand. It's, it's a right of a doctor to do that. But if they're employed by somebody, they'll be like, what the heck are you doing? You need to work on this patient. I mean, what you're doing has nothing to do with the patient. You know, you you need to, to do your job. So, so the point that I'm making here is it's just not wise. And we've seen many of these coaches, uh, they've lost sight of their teams. They've gotten fired because of performance. Um, and I just, I just think that politics, no matter what side you're on, has no place in, in the workplace. It, 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 it has no place. You're, again, you're free to do it. You're free to do it. But you must, you must suffer the consequences. Or in the case of Colin Kaepernick, you must uh, understand that, okay, now you're becoming a political figure and not an athlete, which I think he did. And I actually applaud him because he ended up making more money. He ended up making more money because he took a stand and he got the endorsement deals. And so I say, you know what? Hey, good for him. I just wish these guys would be a little more educated and enlightened when they start getting political because a guy like LeBron James, once he gets political, he, I feel like he has no idea what he's talking about. And when somebody calls him out, like when he went after uh, Sixers general man, or at the time Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, for retweeting, he didn't even state an opinion. He, he, I think he retweeted a meme just saying, you know, I support Hong Kong. And when LeBron James went after him, he wasn't able to back up his stance. Instead, he just attacked Morey saying, you know, he's not educated. He's not knowledgeable about the topic. And then when they pushed him, hey, well, don't you know that the Uyghurs, they're suffering in China and that right, they're right. not just suffering. They're being slaughtered. They're being killed by the hundreds of thousands every year. And LeBron then, he just had no clue and just said, I'm done with this topic. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, he should have not talked about it to begin with. And that's where I agreed with Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan never, to him, it was just, I want to win. Uh, right. I'm a basketball player. I want to win. I'm not a politician. They would go the the, the Democrat, uh, many Democrat candidates in, in North Carolina and in Illinois would go to him and be like, hey, can you endorse me? And he'd be like, no, I, I'm, I'm not political. And even as an owner, it's the same thing. You don't see him uh, donating. You have no idea what he's donating to. You have no idea where he's how he's voting. And he said back then, he said, yeah. Republicans by Jordan. I was going to say, wasn't that (laughs) Republicans by Nikes too? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. Look, uh, politics and and society have and other other polite societies, so to speak, have always intertwined and clashed. I mean, that's nothing new. I think it's just amplified more now. And um, the disinformation, which is again part of free speech, I think we've lost the ability to think critically. All of us Um, and. And we're more than like uh, my friend uh, that I've interviewed on the show, Daniel Schmutter. He's a he's a lawyer. He's argued uh, SCOTUS cases and everything. He says uh, one of the things that infuriates him the most is that when he's having an online discussion slash debate with someone, uh, when he challenges them on their point, they just drop a link and he calls this thing link splaining. You know, like the person has no critical thought around the subject. It's just well, here's a link that supports what I'm saying. 
Well, and by the way, I may not have even read it, but here's the link. You go read it to understand what I'm thinking. And, and I, I kind of find that interesting that that seems to be the default for a lot of people. Like here, here's link explaining, by the way, I, I haven't thought this through, even if my facts are incorrect, I haven't thought this through. So, and that to me is, is more indicative of, I'm not sure if it's schooling or society or the times it's, we it's live not in. It, 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 I'm it's not, not sure. schooling. It's, I think this has actually always been the previously it was just water cooler talk. And I'll say this about the links planning. That's several steps up from what I'm seeing on, on social media, which is like, if we take abortion, for example, I was, I was, I got into a debate, um, mm -hmm. not about abortion, about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And and, and so somebody posted about how it, it was a woman, single woman in her 40s, very, she was very, she seemed very unhappy about her, her life. Right. And, and she posted that uh, women's rights are, are doomed and that, you know, all the reasons to be a woman are now being taken away and that women, uh, we fought, they, they fought so hard for so long to just be equal to men. And now, um, you know, women are second rate citizens because or third rate citizens because of what's going to happen with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And when I see something like that, there was no link. I mean, there was no link to anywhere. This was just pure emotion. Right. And so I came back and I love engaging with because it's good content for my books uh, because I am coming out with a sequel to, to Trump book. Because I do think Donald Trump's going to run again, uh, and and well, so unless he, unless he gets indicted for something, then he then he can't. But yeah, I think if you're right, I do. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do think that unless he gets indicted, he's probably going to win in in the next general election. I, I don't. See well, well, so I that was my I don't want to say concern, but it was a reality that uh, if you asked me a year ago is he going to run again or is he going to win again? I would have said, I don't know, because, because of these lawsuits, you know, the tax stuff, he was the, the um, Manhattan oh, yeah. district attorney yeah, York, was, yeah. yeah. You know, they were going after him. I don't think, I think the whole January 6th thing is, is a big sham. Uh, I don't think he has to worry about that at all. Really. I was more concerned about the, his business dealings and all that. And they ended up just, just letting the cases go they were like yeah there's just not much here we're I, I think they're still pursuing a few here here in new york i think they're they're still looking well the big one the, the big one they dropped they the, the big one that i was uh that i thought you know that they could get him here um they ended up dropping that and and when that was dropped i think that eased him up a little bit because he has pretty much announced that he is running again, not officially, but after the midterms, it's looking like he's because it's, it's looking like a huge red wave for the midterm. So after that, I think that's going to give him the momentum to be like, look, I endorsed all these people. Look how well we did. And and he's he's going to run again. And I also just can't see it, it would be very bad for the country if after after this huge wave happens, um, you know, the attorney general comes in and, and tries to indict him or, or whatever. It would just, I mean, you're looking at another insurrection happening if something like that happens. Well, but, you're right. And it's going to be interesting to see what, what actually plays out because, uh, and I, I'm not even sure that the Republicans want him to run necessarily. They don't. 
they don't so, so the established and that's why he came out which i like because i'm like i'm, I'm actually a libertarian yeah, so um, am I. Yeah. I i'm i'm a libertarian in almost every sense except for fiscal and monetary policy i think i think they're wrong philosophically they're correct but i think i think they're wrong and we can talk about that um a little later but outside of that i'm, I'm very very much libertarian um but going back to what we were talking about yep. with what was I talking about before we got sidetracked by what by Trump running? Uh, you were saying that you thought Trump was going to run. And I think you were trying to tie that into what happens in terms of getting out there in terms of the platforms and the fundraising. No, no, I wasn't. It, it, I was it was before because um, I said I think Trump's running again and then we got sidetracked. But I was. I was going to finish a point, but, but in any case, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're talking about social media, deplatforming. Yeah. Deplatforming. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 Deplatforming so, social media. So, so what I'm going back to, to Trump, I, th I actually think for him, it's a good thing to be deplatformed because he needed that in 2016. That was a basis of my book. Uh, he needed the Twitter, the Facebook, the, the tweets, the, you know, breaking news, Trump just tweeted this, right. uh, he needed that. But now he has such a strong support and backing that I think for his own strategy, it's best for him to stay off the social media to, to just run and, and focus. Oh, and, and, and that's what I wanted to talk about the the whole swamp and and he's running on a platform now you can tell very clearly where he truly he did not drain the swamp in in 20 after 2016 and the first thing the first document that he published was his like 52 step plan of how he's going to drain the swamp how he's going to go after the uh not just big government but the deep state and he's going to make things more honest and more free and i'm perfectly i mean that's one of the reasons why i started supporting him it's that he's a political outsider and that swamp politics overruns the establishment gop the establishment democrat party and that's what they're so afraid that's where the establishment gop and the establishment democrats are united it's we can't allow somebody like a donald trump or a bernie sanders or even an aoc to come in and shake things up. And that's actually what I support. I do support the, the, the shakeup. And he, it appears that he's the only person who's capable of doing that because of, because he's Donald Trump, because he has the wealth, because he's not beholden to too many special interests. And so I think if he just runs on just pure policy and platform and focuses less on the tweeting and the Facebooking and picking fights with, you know, random people on, on Twitter. And I mean, the whole January 6th thing that was completely unnecessary. I mean, I, I, I didn't know it was going to get that bad, but before, before his speech, before the rally, if you want to call it, or the protest, I was just like, this is not a good idea. It, this is, this is veering from, what he was able to accomplish in 2017, 2018, 2019, and then 2020 and 2021 were just, he, he fell off the rails. And so I've noticed that he's gotten older, which I think is good. Uh, it's bad for Joe Biden, but it's good for him. 
And if he can just focus on his agenda, his policy, he's going to do very, very, very well. But isn't that always been one of his, I mean, you could debate how many failings he has as a, as a person, but one of the things that I think all of us, especially those who grew up with him in the news in New York, like I remember him going back to the seventies uh, in New York, um, has been his inability to admit to mistakes, his, Problem. his, his temper, right? Yeah. He, he has, mm -hmm. he has this horrible temper. It's very obvious. And to your point, the distractions of why are you arguing with people on Twitter um, why did you feel, why did you feel the need to, to show up on January 6th when they're certifying the election? I mean, I, I, I get the whole outsider thing, but that just, that was just had trouble written all over it, whether he, well, I, I'm not even making a judgment as to whether he incited a riot or not, but that is not a good idea. Yeah. There had to be people in his inner circle. And I think we're hearing that some of them did actually plead with him, like not to go and, and to not have that rally and, and on that particular day. So, so does that concern you at all though? If you, if you're looking at him going forward, I mean, uh, at this age, he's not getting any wiser. I, 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 you mentioned getting older, you know, I would say that to someone who went from 40 to 50, perhaps, or from 30 to 40, you know, there's these generational leaps we make that we acquire wisdom with experience. He'll be 80, won't he? When he it'll come he'll be, yeah, I think he'll be 79 if, if he wins. And and so that's what I, I think we're going to see a very unique campaign uh, or, or a very unique, uh, yeah, very unique campaign and ticket from from him because he is running like I'm I'm willing to bet big, big money that he is running. And if he yes. does run, uh, he's either going to run unopposed or it, it's going to be some establishment GOP candidate who is just, I mean, it's like the greatest free publicity that you would possibly get going up against him in a debate with just, you know, two or three other people. So it it's, if he runs it, it's just going to be him. I don't think there's going to be this, like this, this showdown of Trump versus DeSantis. I think it's I, just going to be my next question. Do you think DeSantis, like people are I think the establishment GOP and just people in general are assuming that DeSantis is running. And I think a lot of them wouldn't mind seeing him run as opposed to a Trump because he kind of is a Trump. I, that would light, really right? fracture. If that happened, that would really, really fracture the Trump supporters um, because they're very loyal to him and they like DeSantis too. Mm -hmm. And that, that would be a very big problem similar to why Joe Biden didn't run in 2016 it was, well, he's got to go up against Hillary Clinton, and that's going to cause a problem uh, within the, the, the Democrat voters. I, I don't think DeSantis is going to run because mm. Trump is running. That's interesting. Um, I, I, I actually think there's going to be some kind of a, like, the, the ticket is going to be unique in the sense of, uh, like, we're going to have co-presidents. Not, not, not like, you know, the VP at the end of the day doesn't really do anything at all, but, but I, I think Trump is going to pick somebody and uh, that somebody is going to, it, it's going to be promoted as like, th this is like a co-president, you know, who's going to be very, very involved in the decisions and in just, really? you know, yeah. I find, I, I find that to be antithetical to Trump's personality for one to, to, to run everything himself and take credit for everything himself. And, 
And also the other moves he's been making lately where he's supporting loyalists, Trump loyalists, I should say, he is. Yeah. for for really what normally would be nondescript positions like Secretary of State, Attorney yeah. State Attorney Generals, right? Because he's looking ahead to exactly 2024 exactly. When, when he'll have like he doesn't want a repeat of the Georgia situation where he placed a phone call and it got rebuffed. Right. He doesn't yeah. want that again. So he's getting Trump loyalists. And I think I forget the states, but I think in two or three states, he's actually managed to do that. I think. Yes. And, so he, right? he's yeah. So he's trying really hard in Georgia. And that's the only state where he's failed. Um, he his endorsements have done extremely well in Texas and even in New Mexico, which is which has been blue for a while. But we'll, we'll and see Arizona they, as well. Right? Uh, Arizona. Uh, he's been able to change things there. Pennsylvania, Michigan. We'll see how he does in Michigan. Uh, but Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin. So he's he's very clearly the, the only reason why he's doing this. Like you said, these are like random positions that nobody pays any attention right. to when it comes to secretaries of states, when it comes to governors. Uh, he's only doing this because, and this was important to, to me even back in 2012. It was election integrity. It was you know, voter ID, it was like, you, you got to clean up the way that that these elections are run. I mean, there are third world countries, or if you want to call second world countries, that do a better job of verifying and, and running elections than the United States does. And so I'm all for better election uh, laws, voting laws, um, better election standards, because it still is very easy to commit a election fraud. It still is very easy. So um, whether it's him or Ted Cruz or whoever it is who, who's fighting the, the guy out of Missouri, the senator out of Missouri, the young man there, um, it, it needs to be cleaned up. And if he can, it, it finally, because I said, you know, he, or he said, this is going to be one of my main platform, one of my main agendas when I, in 2016, and it wasn't draining the swamp wasn't. So I'm like, okay, you didn't drain the swamp. You didn't, you know, pass the uh, uh, voter ID laws or election integrity laws. So if you're truly running on whatever platform you're going to run on and you're, and you're going to do these things, I support those things. Absolutely. Um, so, so anyway, the, the VP is going to be very, very important to, to the Trump and it's not Pence is, is out. I mean, he, there's no way he's, he's coming back. So who is that VP going to be? Is it going to be Ron DeSantis? I don't think so because politically I think Trump needs a minority or a woman as liberal as that sounds or, or like, uh, you know, radical left as that sounds. Well, let's face it. Trump was a New York Democrat up until he turned Republican. <laughs> right. And he used to, I, I find it ironic that people get upset at me when I say that, but he used to proudly walk around saying, Hey, I'm just a Democrat from Queens. He used to say that all the time. Um, so it he was, and he's a populist, right? So it doesn't surprise me at all about what you're saying as a strategy that, yeah, I got to get a woman on there I, or I got to get a minority in there because you know what? I had Pence last time and he didn't do Jack for me. Um, the country may feel otherwise, but he, he, I know he has a burning hatred now for Pence. Right. So um, yeah, you're right. As, as liberal quote, as that sounds, um, you might be right. I just don't know who would fit that bill necessarily. I think there are two people and, 
and uh, one of them is Nikki Haley, who he hired as the UN ambassador. Right. She's a woman. Right. She's a minority, although she doesn't come across as a minority. She is 100% minority. She's uh, Indian. She's America, Indian. Right? Right. She's yep. Indian. Yeah, 100%. Um, so she's one and she's the, the problem is she hasn't been very loyal to him. It, it appears through her tweets and all that, that she hasn't been very loyal to the whole January 6th thing and, you know, whether he should run again. The well, other guy establishment GOP. Person, she is. Right? She's very established. Yeah. Very. She's a war hawk. Like she loves war. She, mm-hmm. uh, you know, globalization, globalism, all that. The the other candidate. It's Tim Scott, the senator out of South Carolina. He's African-American. He spoke at the RNC. I think those are, I think those should be his top two. But at the same time, if, if, if there's like a co-president type of ticket, then he has no choice but to pick Ron DeSantis as his, as his vice president, because he's 79 years old. You know, is he going to make it to the end? Is he going to be, you know, mentally fit to to, to, to be president? I mean, he's going to get the votes. He has the support. But um, but that's what that that's kind of what I see seeing. Those would be my top three picks for vice president. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I certainly understand what you're trying to say, but I, I the, the the Coke presidential ticket, I, I don't see happening. Quite honestly, that's so anti-Trump in his personality. And I don't think his, I don't think any of his supporters would go for that. I don't think they care. And much like Trump, I don't think they ever think he's dying. You know, like Trump (laughs) has no sense of his mortality at all. Like people have, have said that around him. It's been a running joke. Like he just figured out that he's going to die one day. He doesn't, he doesn't inherently accept that position, right? He thinks he's going to keep going and look for 70, how old is he? 77, 78 right now. 77 um, i think 77 yeah. he's in great shape let's face it. i mean yeah he's portly but i mean he's he's mentally oh he's in really good shape he's in good shape what he was able to do in 2020 if you remember during the the thick of the campaign season he got covid yes. and and he went to the hospital it was a very mild covid for him but it, it basically gave him three days of just like rest of just like getting away and like sleeping and eating and just resting and if you remember his campaign he was doing two to three MAGA rallies a day leading up to the election after after he got COVID and these were not in the same cities he was oh no he was traveling yeah yeah he he would be in one state and then five hours later be in another state yeah and the rallies were ginormous ginormous (laughs) And that was very, very impressive. And I, I mean, he's a guy who thinks he can do anything. So it, it, it's, and he, and he comes from that world too. So I get that. But two things that, that you mentioned, going back to the social media thing, uh, and, and we'll see how it works out. But I think it's good that he's deplatformed for him. I don't agree with it. It's not a good business decision. But for him, I think that's good for his campaign uh, and, and for him running again. But he also, I mean, what makes him unique from Bush and Obama? I mean, these guys, they just disappeared. Like Bush, like he disappeared. Clinton is now second fiddle to Hillary Clinton. He pretty much disappeared. Even Obama, it's, it's really all about Michelle Obama now. That's, that's traditionally been the way presidents have um, acted, right? So it's not, you've rarely seen a president 
like the only one I could think of in recent memory, if at all, is Jimmy Carter. And he he became more he's still active. Alive. He's still alive. Yeah, he's I still think. alive. Yeah. He's still alive. And people, if if he went to a grocery store, I guarantee if he went to a Walmart, no one will know who he is. But but people know of his work after he left office being for Habitat of, uh, for Humanity and things like that. So, I mean, but he's the only one, like, if you asked me, like, you know, what did uh, either Bush do when they left office or Clinton to some extent, or even Obama right now, I don't know what they're doing. They just and, give speeches. That's it. If, if that. They get and, paid a lot. Well, I mean, yes. they get paid a lot. So yeah, that's they why hit they the give speeches. I agree. They hit the circuit. But I mean, yeah. you don't, you don't hear them being, getting their toes wet in politics even to support well, in anything or in anything, anything right i mean and, al gore was a rare except somebody who like made it big after his political career i mean uh, but he was can... never president i'm 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 thinking yeah yeah yeah, yeah. More i know specifically I know. of presidents right but i mean but yeah and and even al gore's involvement really wasn't political it was around climate change or whatever he did there but i mean like you're right trump is the the only one who four years later is still complaining he's still whipping up the masses and everything well i'm not talking just about that i'm not talking just about the political stuff but mm-hmm. but he's a type of guy the person i mean this is really in any entrepreneur's blood it's like okay well twitter's going to deplatform me faith i'm i'm going to be deplatformed well, what am I going to do? I'm just going to start my own thing. And he started Truth Social, which is basically a ripoff of Twitter. And they're planning to compete with Netflix, with Facebook, with Instagram. They're going to come out with their own somewhat Christian type of programming, uh, canceled type of programming. I mean, I think it's a great idea because if if companies are going to go woke and succeed at it, I think com- companies can go anti-woke and succeed at it as well and that's what he's that's what he's doing and and so i think it's a great business idea and if he runs again yes he is going to enrich his whether it's himself or his children or really it's 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 his family because all he has to do is run again and he's going to become the center of attention and truth social and all those companies are going to get the free publicity that startups die for i mean they raise all sorts of funding for that type of stuff well well, to be honest with you when he ran in 2016 at the time i was doing a different show more focused on politics than than this one but i remember saying i was convinced his entire presidential run was for one purpose and that was to draw attention to to the apprentice and also a potential trump network which was being rumored at the time yep and I just think then Roger Ailes got a hold of him and said, look, he's having an effect on this wash of people. And I think no one, including Trump, expected him to be this successful. That's why I think the talk of stolen election and all that started in 2016 when he was because he anticipated losing. And he was, you know, like most pollsters, he thought he was going to lose, you know. So and I think that's, I, you know I actually I mean? disagree with that. I, okay. So I, I agree. I agree. Here's why. And I'll, I'll share some things. Sure. I, I do agree that uh, he ran to inflate his negotiation with NBC Universal. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a given because he was up for a new contract. I do think that's what he did. Right. Um, but I also do think that he truly believed that he could come in and basically insult his way to the top of the GOP ticket simply because everyone who was running was so weak. And I think his main target was Jeb Bush. And he was able, he was able to early on basically put himself on a pedestal and Jeb Bush 
at a very, very low level. And here's why. In 2012, there were polls that came because the Republicans were in disarray. Really after the Bush presidency, the Republicans were in complete disarray. And so for 2012, it was like, okay, well, who's gonna, who do we put up there? Like McCain was a terrible candidate. Romney already ran in 2008, didn't do very well. So they were like, let's go with this, uh, that pizza, uh, Herman Cain. He became like the, the outsider, you know, minority Republican. Right. Let's just throw him out there and, you know, have, have a black guy going against another black president. And, you know, it'll be interesting to watch type of thing. And he, he just, I mean, he wasn't fit. That was not his, he didn't know how to talk in front of a microphone. Right. He didn't know much about policy. And so there were polls that came out showing, um, you know, the current candidates, nobody, the GOP didn't really like any of them. And they started throwing names out there. You know, people like Donald Trump, people uh, else, people like Jesse Ventura. And Donald Trump won in all of those polls. He was beating Mitt Romney. And the problem, though, was that, like you mentioned earlier, just three years earlier, Trump was a Democrat who voted for Obama in 2008, and he was pro-Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and on top of that, Obama was a very strong candidate. So I think Trump made the decision in 2012, he was like, you know what, I'm just going to sit this one out, wait until 2016, when there's going to be a very weak Democratic field, there's going to be a very weak Republican field. And you know how it works after eight years. I mean, you knew Obama had the writing on the wall once the in 2014 uh, or really in 2012, he wasn't able to keep the house right. um, they, or he wasn't able to turn the house blue, even though his name was on the ticket. And in 2014, he lost Congress fully. His writing was on the wall. So you knew that a, a Republican was going to win in, in 2016. So that's where I think Trump was like, in 2014, when he saw that, when, when the uh, Senate shifted in the Republican favor, he was like, you know what, I actually think, yeah, I am, I am inflating the apprentice thing, but I actually legitimately think I have a chance at, at winning the president because of the polls and because of the, the trends. And we're seeing the same trend right now. Well, yeah, now it's obvious because it's always going to be people are always going to vote their pockets and this inflation and, and just yep. the general malaise in the economy right now. Um, you know, like the economic reasons for inflation are, are very, very uh, simple, but people make them complicated. You know, it's like you can't keep spending money every every year and going into debt every year, which goes back not just to Biden and Trump and Obama. It goes back probably to Reagan, you know, uh, the defense buildup there. But the truth of the matter is, I think that it's interesting watching how that built to 2016. You mentioned all that. I have a theory. I don't know. Like, I can't prove it, obviously, but I have a theory that between Ailes and Bannon, the Tea Party was their first attempt to, to build the Nationalist Party, right? And they used the the front of economic uh, 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 reasoning, right? The lower taxes and things like that. But I think what happened out of the Tea Party, the Tea Party had a lot of goofs that got elected, but out of it, you had a lot of what I would call libertarians, staunch libertarians. You had Justin Amash, you had Thomas Massey. Um, I think, was Cruz part of that originally, part of that wave? Yeah, I know Mike I Lee was. was, Cruz, right? So initially you had politicians that may have gotten in on this populist wave, but 
I guess they weren't filtered out properly by Ailes and, and Bannon. So uh, the second time around was that was the Trump nationalism, I'm using air quotes, right, which would be really not focused on economics, because I think most people who are voting for Trump don't understand how economics work. I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think like the concept of tariffs being really anti-free market, previously just about no Republican would support a tariff, right? All of a sudden Trump puts up a tariff, you know, bam, the concept of Trump saying, hey, why worry about that? All, all I got to do is pick up the phone and run off a couple of hundreds, right? I mean, he famously said that. He's well, so here's where I disagree with libertarian philosophy. And, and, and this is because this is what I was taught in libertarianism, Austrian economics, exactly right. what you're saying. And it ended up being very wrong in 2008, 2009, 2010, where, um, at the time, we were spending, spending, spending bailouts, and it was, you know, the, the Austrian economists were saying, oh, we're going to see all this rampant inflation, and we didn't see it. We saw it in some asset classes, but that's not that seeing inflation in a few asset classes is not inflation. Agreed. We, we saw deflation during that time. Well, we saw the Fed keep rates artificially low, which was to stave off inflation, right? I mean, when you, when you keep rates artificially at zero... Um, that helps stave off the inflation, right? But I mean, regardless- but even well, well, even now, so so going, and this is what I like because, like you said, the establishment GOP would be like, no, no more spending. And I actually liked that Trump came in and said, we are going to pass this infrastructure bill. Um, we are, you know, COVID happens, and we are going to pass these trillion dollar bills. And I, I, I am still of the camp, and I know you're not going to agree with this. But I am very much of the camp that the inflation was caused by the COVID restrictions. And they were caught because it, what the COVID restrictions did, they created almost a, a culture war. It, it was a cultural change. It wasn't just, you know, everybody locked down and we see inflation because people realized that, hey, you know, I don't need to go work at McDonald's anymore. Like, yes, a lot of people got money. They got their stimulus checks. But let's be honest here, a thousand dollar check, that's not going to be enough for you to be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to quit my job. Um, and, and they got what, like three, they ended up making, if you were, you ended up getting maybe three or $4,000 in stimulus. That's it. That's not enough to, to quit a job. I think what we saw was a cultural shift in, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to be part of this great resignation because I figured out ways to make money, whether it's through crypto or Bitcoin or stocks or, uh, that, you know, freelancing, part it's part of it. It's, it's all part of it or, or just freelancing or being an independent contractor or whatever it is. And that's why we saw wage inflation uh, because there was a labor shortage. So the only way to try, I mean, is basic, this is where the basic economics comes in. So there's a labor shortage and how do you get people to work for you? You keep raising the wages and they raise, raise. And we naturally saw an increase in wages because what I, I pinpoint the root of this, it was COVID restrictions. And so once, co once places started opening up, it's like, okay, we, we're seeing inflation um, because of COVID, because of the supply chain disruptions that it's caused. Then you throw in Russia and Putin and, and Russia is the 11th largest economy in the world. And Putin, look, he's a very sharp, smart guy. 
and he knows exactly how to screw other the world over economically. He knew what he was doing and he knew that these sanctions were going to come. And he knew that most of the countries would be like, you know what, we're not sanctioning you anymore because we're not going to survive if we keep sanctioning you. And so my whole thing was we wouldn't see, and I was completely against all the lockdowns, uh, even, even before the vaccine came out, because look, I'm part of a, an age group where we knew from day one, once COVID hit in the United States, the mainstream, because we saw what happened in Italy, we saw what happened in the UK, we saw what happened in Israel. We knew from day one that if you're under 40 years old without any comorbidities, your ch- chances of dying are zero. Not not one, not point one. Right. There's so it's it's like point oh oh oh. It, it's so I mean, there's still a chance. It's, it's highly rounded un- off yeah. to, to, to it's to highly zero. unlikely. It's highly your unlikely. chances of even ending up in the hospital are also zero. So so my whole thing with this one size fits all approach of everybody just locked down. You know, you have to work from home. If if you're a restaurant worker, you lose your job because that's a non-essential job. And you know, this job is essential, but this other job is not essential. That's what created this in, initial in, inflation, and well, then Putin I, exacerbated it. I, I don't know that it caused inflation. I think it had more to do with unemployment numbers. But you're also forgetting the state unemployment benefits. It's so it wasn't just the stimulus checks. It was also the yeah. You know, they got they got expanded benefits. They got extended I, benefits. So I think that's part of the that reason. was because of COVID. That I, was agreed. COVID, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So all um, I'm saying is, if they uh, if they took the Sweden approach, which look as a libertarian, you're libertarian. It's all mm-hmm. about personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's about you know, give me liberty. Like I'm responsible for my health. I'm responsible for my own life. So if they took a Swedish approach of of look, life continues. This is this virus. This is what's happening. And so if you have a comorbidity, if you are above the age of 60, you should be it would be and I agree, like my dad was in that age bracket. So I told him I said, you should lock down. No, listen, (laughs) listen, um, uh, you know, both my wife and I are biologists, and she's like a virologist. So like, I, you know, I mean, we but the, the, the thing that I have to say is, yes, as a libertarian or just a reasonable person, I thought the lockdowns were too much. I, I, I don't, I'm not down with that. Um, what I objected to was the politicization of, of the virus itself, you know? So on the one hand, you know, like, and I understand a lot of this is Trump not following a script. I get it. Um, that's so another when, mistake he made. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, like when we come out and think on his feet without vetting what he was going to say, I, I get it. People like his his apologists would tell me, well, he, you know, he's just thinking through things. And I'm like, he shouldn't be doing that on camera. The time to think through things is in the Oval Office yeah. with your advisors, right? Yeah. That's why they hand you a piece of paper, you know? So, and, and it's very interesting. I don't know if you ever saw it, but about a year before the election in 2016, Sam Harris was reviewing the, the candidates and he did a one hour piece on Trump, which is almost eerie in the way it predicted his presidency, you know, uh, whether you supported him or not, meaning Trump, um, because he actually says the odds are very high. It's more likely than not that we will face a pandemic situation. And I'm not sure. T- I remember Trump this. Has the, yeah, he has the temperament. Yeah. I remember this, yeah. Because yeah. I used to listen to Sam Harris's podcast yeah. 
yeah. back then in 2016, yeah. 2015, 2016. And, and I you- disagreed with him because my whole, my whole thesis was, and, and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. My whole thesis was he's got a cabinet. I mean, being a president really is not that big. You've got like a hundred people working for you, all these right. advisors. You're a face. You're a face. And you're a face, you're a figurehead. Right. So even if he doesn't have the temperament, he's going to be able, it's not going to show he's like, he's not, but the mistakes. So you brought up the first mistake that I mentioned earlier was January 6th. The second mistake was during the pandemic, he created this pandemic task force. That was good. The mistake was he did not let the task force be the face of handling the pandemic. He wanted to be the face. He did the daily press briefings. He put Mike Pence in charge. He should have told Pence and Fauci, look, you guys are in charge of the task force. So you do the press conferences and you decide how you're going to answer all the questions. And he should have stepped away from it. That was a huge blunder on his part because again, it turned into a shouting match every day. Um, And I get it because it was an election year. They were trying to go after him. I I completely get it. But as a businessman who likes to outsource and delegate, that's what he should have done. It's funny because that's precisely the reason why I think a co-presidential ticket will never come from Trump. That's You've just explained why, because in his best interest would have been like, I've assigned these people. They've told me they're the best people for the job, Fauci, Burks, whoever. Um, So I'm going to let them talk. And if you think about it, what's the downside for him? If they, if they, if they perform well, he gets the credit because he appointed them. And if they fail, he could point it off on them, right? Like a typical consultant, right? But he couldn't resist he couldn't resist the siren call of the microphone, right? He had to be there. He had to be the mistake. Mistake. Huge mistake. Big mistake. But right. yeah, I'm sorry, Nairaj. I'm going to wrap it up because we, yeah. we've gone a while here, but I, I, this was a great talk. I don't mean to cut you off, but um, I'm going to put a quick question to you. You give me a quick answer without thinking. What's the, uh, what's the Republican ticket in 2024? I'm going to go with Trump, Tim Scott. Trump Scott. Okay, we're going to hold you to that. We're going to play this back and let people know you said it in Irish. Okay, time for silly questions. Uh, we haven't talked about these. I'm going to throw them out at you. Uh, first question is, who is the most influential philosopher slash author in your life? Well, okay. So the most influential philosopher is uh, Lord. So I'm a religious Hindu, Lord Krishna, who recited the holy text of the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, but, but I also want to add a few more. Sure. Uh, I think, I think Karl Marx is the most influential economist, whether you agree with him or disagree. I think there are a lot of principles, especially coming from his concept of the proletariat and the lumpen proletariat. Um, I think there are a lot of ideas that he, he was just far ahead of his time. And those principles, his, his theories and ideologies are very much still applicable today. Even his situations that he lays out are still very much applicable today. So I'm going to put him up there as well. Okay. Certainly a light. And then of course, Ayn Rand. I can't, Ayn Rand is, I mean, I, I live my life according to many not Marx, but uh, I brought up Lord Krishna and Ayn Rand really based on those two. Those it's two really philosophers. funny. Ayn Rand, uh, obviously, economically, the complete polar opposite of Karl Marx. 
uh, Ayn Rand for e her economics, her literature, or her objectivism? Which, which objectivism. Her objectivism. It's all about the yep objectivism. Not okay. uh, like I said, I don't agree with the fiscal and monetary libertarian approach, but uh, objectivism, absolutely. Okay. Randian okay. philosophy, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. Uh, favorite band? I don't or, really. Or or musical artist? Um, I I just. I don't really listen to a whole lot of music anymore. So I can't really, I'm kind of lame in that sense. Okay, fair enough. That, I'll just say, I mean, top 40 hip hop. Top 40 hip hop, fair yeah. enough. Uh, okay, uh, favorite sport to watch? College basketball. College basketball, okay. And now, uh, before we wrap up, I want you to give me your little bit of a thing that I saw in your bio. You actually spent some time in the Houston Rockets draft room, did you not? Not in the draft room, if you want to call it the remote draft room. Fair enough. Yes. Okay. So in 2007, well, really in 2006, I went to a high school that had an internship program for high schoolers. It was a one month internship. And the Rockets, Houston Rockets, I grew up in Houston. The Houston Rockets announced that they were uh, hiring a man by the name of Daryl Morey, who nobody had ever heard of. He was a consultant, like mm. a, at the Parthenon group. He never played basketball. He was not like an athlete by any means. And they announced that their current general manager was going to be retiring at the end of the season. And this guy Morey would spend one year as an assistant GM and then take over. And so I was able to get my high school to get in touch with the Rockets because I wanted to intern. I said, I think Daryl Morey is going to become the next big, you know, out kind of like how, how what I told you about draining the swamp and being mm -hmm. a political outsider. I was like, this is this is an outside the box, you know, draining the the basketball swamp gotcha. uh, outsider type of move that I think is going to work out very well because I started reading about the use of statistical analysis in in sports. So I read the book Moneyball, Moneyball, yeah, and I was like, this is I don't know why everyone isn't doing this because numbers don't lie. So so the school got in touch and. And they, he said, you know, we don't have anything like for one month, but what we do need, he said, we're, I'm going to be taken over after the season and we need a ton of basically unpaid interns to do like grunt work. And I was like excited. I said, heck yeah, I want to do that. So I was an intern for the Houston Rockets for two straight summers, helping them in evaluating draft prospects. And this was, once again, this was all new stuff. Right. I got a subscription to, or they gave me a subscription to a software that basically tracked and logged all sorts of video on every player, international players, college players, high school players. And so they would give me a task and be like, Hey, we're looking at drafting this player. Can you log every single pick and roll situation <laughs> that they've been in? during their senior year in college or can you track every shot that they took um 
during, you know, the three years that they were in college and, and they would give me a shot chart and I had to log every single shot. And the reason for that was because that was a very good indicator. If they were taking a bunch of mid range, mid range jump shots, like 15 footers, 16 footers, that's somebody who they don't want. Whereas if they're taking, if they're dunking the ball all the time, layups, shooting threes, that's somebody who they wanted. And so, uh, it was basically, you know, here's a player complete this task. And I was like, so I wanted to impress them and all that. So I was very diligent and, you know, quick, Uh, like I would be done within 24 hours, 48 hours. And so they kept giving me more and more players and, and uh, for two straight drafts, what happened. And they ended up drafting some of the players who I was, uh, who I was tracking or who I was scouting uh, Aaron Brooks in 2007, he ended up winning most improved player of the year. And then in uh, Carl Landry that year as well. And then in 2008, Dante Green, who ended up having a really good summer league and got traded for Ron Artest because of that good summer league. Um, so, yeah, I did that for two summers. And then after that, I was like, you know, what? it's time to move on and make some real money. Oh, so okay. I, I get I get I kind of gave up. I did. I went to graduate school. Uh, had some connections to uh, like Kyrie Irving, his agent, and right. a few other people with the Charlotte Hornets. Because uh, I went to school in North Carolina, to, to well, I went to a business school at Duke, which is a very good sports school. Yeah, very, a uh, lot of agents come out of there. A lot of uh, executives uh, come out of there, but it's just not a route that I wanted to move forward with because you, I mean, the grunt work never stops it. it, it I, I just looked at the totality and I was more like, you know what, I want to do something that I like and hopefully uh, just like make a good living immediately and just be happy. So uh, I gave up on that sports stream after that. Well, you know what? Good for you because at least you knew what you wanted and you didn't have to go through uh, a lot of toil before you came to. I'm really happy. I'm really happy that I did not go that that route because now we have some clients who work in the industry, whether they're uh, financial advisors, financial planners, agents in professional sports, NFL, NBA, and man, it is it is a rat race, jungle, cutthroat. It, every term you can think of, uh, like I wouldn't have any other life outside of that. Um, that, that's what it, there's, whereas now I work from home, you brought up, I host a work from home show. Like I work from home. I take care of my, I've got two boys. I take care of my boys. I live in Florida, uh, used to live on the beach. The beach now is like 10 minutes away from us. The water is like five minute, a five minute run. Um, I mean, I, I like this Florida lifestyle a lot better than that. More. I used to live in Manhattan, that more Manhattan rat race lifestyle. I have to tell you, as much as I like in my old age, uh, sitting back and relaxing, I I still miss my Manhattan lifestyle. I grew up in the city and I, I, it's, uh, it's funny because I, my wife was not a city girl and it's like uh, oil and water, the two of us, you know, but, but I certainly understand. And, and I, I, I'm happy that you were able to, to understand what made you happy because I think for a lot of people, they don't get to that realization until later in life, if at all. And you seem like a young man and to be able to come to that realization at an early age, I think is a wonderful sort of insight that you were able to glean. So I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. Uh, Nairesh Fisa, give us your, your, uh, any, uh, handles you have, where can people find you, get a hold of you? 
Yeah, uh, Instagram, rnareish15. You can find me there. Or just type in my name. You'll find me there. Twitter, x, Naresh x. Type in my name. You'll find me there. All my books are on Amazon. So just type in my name, Naresh Vissa. You'll find them on Amazon. And uh, would would greatly appreciate you checking them out, including Trump book. I think you'll, it's got great reviews. It's The audiobook has sold super well. So check if you liked our political discussion, then definitely check out Trump book. Absolutely, folks. And I'll tell you, when I went to Amazon to check out an Irish book, uh, Trump book, I did see a lot of four and five star ratings, mostly mostly fives. So so do yourself a favor, check it out. All right, Nairesh Visa, thank you for joining us on this edition of The Big Question with Vic John. Love to have you back in the future when your new book is published. Uh, but until then, we'll catch everybody in the next episode. See you, everyone. <laughs>